Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Melissa Stutter, and this is Teferit Talk, the Blog Talk Radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. In addition to listening today, we'd love for you to join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com. That's www.tiferetjournal.com, where you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. We'd like to let you know as well that our Blog Talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Our interview tonight is with poets Adele Kenny and Deborah Lavalia. Both are reading series directors. Kenny is the director of Carriage House Poetry Reading Series, and Lavalia directs Poets Wednesday. Both also work for Teferit, Kenny as poetry editor, and Lavalia as a reading coordinator. Kenny is the award-winning author of more than a dozen books of poetry and nonfiction. Her most recent collection of poems, What Matters, was released just this month. Lavalia is a workshop facilitator for events such as Teen Arts Festival, as well as author of the collection Vigil. Welcome, Adele and Deborah. It's so wonderful to have you both on the show. How are y'all doing tonight? Very well, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you very much. Doing well. I'm thrilled. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, so this is great. Um, so since you guys both host poetry series, the first thing I wanted to talk about is giving readings. And um, I wanted to see what some pointers are that you can give to help writers feel confident about giving public readings of their own work. Um, uh, either one of us go yeah. first? Oh, oh. It's kind of funny. Go ahead, Deborah. You, go ahead. At the same time, so go ahead. <laughs> Um, oh, well, I, I would just say to a new reader who is not familiar with the poetry scene um, to just practice a lot at home and become familiar and comfortable with reading the work. And even reading in front of a mirror sometimes like can help you to see how what you're doing with your body physically. And um, just to go slow when you're reading and take your time, go slower than you would anticipate, you know, normally. And... Um, Listen to the rules of the venue that you're at so that no one is upset after your reading. And that's really all I could think of. Yeah, I would say that um, those are all excellent uh, pointers, Deborah. I would say to read slowly and loudly. And as you said, Deborah, more slowly than you would normally speak and louder than you would normally speak. Uh, Many venues don't provide a microphone. So that's particularly important in those situations. But just slowly and loudly so that the audience is able to hear what you're saying and to to really internalize your your words and your imagery and your thoughts. Uh, The idea of practicing in front of a mirror is a great one. Um, And also to uh, try to have a little eye contact with the audience. So as you practice at home before you read in public, you know, practice looking up because that sort of invites the reader into the poem uh, in in a special kind of way. Do you have any advice for how to make eye contact without losing their place? Because I know that's probably what a lot of people are afraid of when they're not wanting to look up. 
Well, I'll tell you a trick that I do. My eyes are not the best, and I, I wear um, progressive lenses. So what I normally do is I type the poem out in a very large font. And as I'm reading, I keep my finger on the page so that if I look up for a, a moment or two, when I look down, my finger shows me right where I should be, and the, the print is large enough that I can see it without losing my place. That, that's great. great advice, Adele. I do the same thing. And also, uh, sometimes if there's like certain lines that I want to emphasize and, and perhaps look up at the audience at that time um, when, at, at home while I'm practicing myself, I'll make, um, you know, I'll put stars next to those lines so that I, I see it coming and then I'll, I'll look up at the audience and then I know where to go back to. Mm, that's a great idea. Sometimes I highlight those lines or phrases in yellow. Oh, right, right. Oh. Oh, so you know, you kind of know in advance where you want to try to look up. You've got it highlighted, and and you know where to look back down. Yes, I think it, it's a good way to plan it. It makes you feel a little more secure when you're in in front of the public audience. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Thank you. Well, um, I wanted to ask also as uh, and whoever feels like answering first. Well, why don't we do it this way? Um, I'll I'll ask you first. Adele on this one, and then Deborah, you can add to it. Um, okay. But I'm wondering, as poets who both publish a great deal and also give a lot of readings, um, what are some of the differences that you notice between how poetry conveys on the page and how it comes across when it's read aloud? Well, I think on the page, the reader can take uh, a longer time to sort of... Uh, get into the poem to to spend time with the imagery and you know the the deeper meanings of the poem i think when a poem is read um the the reader uh, the listener rather has to really pay close attention so they're two very different processes um i think as a listener um you also need to observe the 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 poet's body language because sometimes mm-hmm. the the poet will give you clues, facial expressions, things like that all come into play. And of course, each reader is different, just as each poem is different. Yes, I I totally agree with what you said, Adele. And um, also, just um, sometimes I have poems that are specifically for reading at a reading, and perhaps they wouldn't be cu- be published in a magazine. Perhaps they're too long, or or they're just not right for that. But some of my poems I do write specifically for reading aloud. So um, you're absolutely right. It's totally it's a different process that you go through when when yeah. you're um, and you know that's writing. a good a good point, Deborah, about some poems being for performance only. Sometimes you write a poem that you actually even if you're not a performance poet per se, but you, that you perform, that you present in a different way, and that just would not come across on the printed page. So you don't publish that poem. Right, absolutely. That's so funny. That's exactly what I was about to ask, and you both answered it. So (laughs) (laughs) it seems natural that that would be the case, you know, because some some poems are just more visual, whereas others are more auditory, and um, it it just it makes a difference. So, um, Adele, I wanted to ask you as poetry editor. Can you tell us some of the things that you look for in a submission? Things that we look for, well, primary, first and always, is excellence in writing. We look for top quality uh, imagery, figurative language, 
all of the things that make a good poem a good poem. We look for, for that first and foremost, but we also look for poems that are not self-consciously religious or spiritual. I think sometimes when people see that it's a, a journal of spiritual literature, they automatically think, okay, so it needs to be religious poetry or poetry about the spirit. And that's not really what I look for when I'm reading submissions. I look for poems that reveal the human spirit in a special way, in a well-crafted, beautifully written way, but also in a way that conveys some insight or special meaning about the human spirit. So, you know, that's not to say that religious poetry is not anything that we might accept, because we certainly would, but sometimes poems that we receive are just sort of, I call them self-consciously religious, like the poet was thinking, okay, it's a journal of spiritual literature, so I have to make it meet a certain uh, criterion for spiritual or religious poetry, and that's really not what we're about. So it's it's almost like they're writing for an assignment or something. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And and I feel badly when I see that because I can understand, you know, where that would come from. But we're we sort of define it very loosely so that we're open to a very wide range of interpretations of spiritual. Mhm. Okay, great. Thank you. Um and I guess both of you, um, Deborah and Adele, would probably classify yourselves as spiritual poets, would you not? Um, I I, th- I think so in many respects, but as Adele was saying, it's it's not the idea that's on my in my head while I'm writing a poem. But m- most of my poetry, I think you could classify it as as spiritual. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think that to to say that a spiritual poem by either one of us or anybody else for that matter really begins with the thought, okay, now I'm going to sit down and write a spiritual poem. I think it's something in your own spirit and your own um, craft that dictates as you write and it it just happens. But I don't think it's a conscious process at all. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Well, Deborah, would you like to read a poem for us? I was thinking of the poem Peace. Um, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, and uh, and thank you again for for inviting me to um, to read the poem and to talk tonight. Um, oh, yes, it's a delight to have you here. Thank you. Pe- peace. I don't know what it means to have peace. We fight. We kill. I don't believe in war. Joined the CCCO, but my father fought in wars. My uncles and cousins too. Now my friends, daughters, and sons are over there. Serve one tour and then another. My father fought in two wars. He was a patriotic man, the Pacific Theater and World War II. Said he'd do it again. He brought the war home with him. Let it live inside him the rest of his life. He had a pin and a ring with a flag on it. Never took them off. But he couldn't sleep at night. He dreamed war. He couldn't drive a car. War lived inside of him. He had cold sweats some nights, a leftover gift from malaria. He had two medals. He had an honorable discharge. He had a nervous breakdown, PTSD. Shell-shocked, they called it then. 
He didn't bring peace home with him. It wasn't wrapped in a box for me to open. He didn't save a sliver of it and show me late at night when we both couldn't sleep and say, look at this. This is what I accomplished. He didn't want to talk about it. Once, he showed me a bullet he brought home from Korea and said I carried munitions. And not another word. Never another word. And when he died and I cleaned out his apartment, he, there wasn't an old uniform or a medal or a helmet to be found. All thrown away long ago. He didn't need them. The war was inside of him. And when he died, the funeral director gave me a flag, neatly folded into the shape of a triangle. Wow, thank you. Oh, Deborah, that's so beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. It has some such incredibly powerful lines. (laughs) I think my favorite is he didn't bring peace home with them. I love that. Oh, Um, thank you. Anyway, you're welcome. So um, anyway, peace to me is one of those poems that seems simple on the surface, but it's actually really complex. And um, although the language is plain and direct and the ideas are direct as well, the ideas are interwoven in a way that creates a really sophisticated irony. And I'm thinking specifically of things such as the anaphora, meaning the way the phrase he had is repeated at the beginning of the lines, emphasizing through that basic poetic structure of repetition that there is an act absolute lack of harmony among the things that he had. Does, does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. <laughs> right. So so I'm wondering, did you um, have these techniques in mind when you were constructing the poem, or can you share with us a little bit about how you constructed it? Um, well, th- this poem was one of the rare poems that um, you- usually, uh, and I'm constantly rewriting this one also, like whenever I send it out, I'll change a few words here and there. But it did come out rather quickly. Um, and often the ones that come quickly are are my best poems for me. That's how it works. But um, I do work on them anyway. And, uh, no, I did not have those in mind at the time, no, um, anything like that, you know. It just sort of came out, and then I worked on um, cutting off words and trying to make it um, a little tighter here and there, things like that. You know, it's funny. I I noticed that the copy that I saw before is a little different from the one that you read tonight, so that's kind of funny that you mentioned. I'm I'm constantly, constantly (laughs) revising. I know. It's it's, it's, uh, – a little crazy, but I, you're, you always see something and say, hmm, that could be a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> it's like your leaves of grass, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Um, also, uh, I thought it was really interesting what you said about how often your best poems come quickly, and I'm wondering if, Adele, if you have that same experience of writing. I haven't really thought about that, but uh, yes, I, I think that may be so. I think that there are poems... Um, that are sort of gifts or given, and they come to us in a kind of of rush of of feeling or a rush of recollection. And those are the poems, I think, that although they they require work and and some tweaking and refining, those may just be the poems that become at least our favorites, if not our very best. Right, absolutely. Yes, thank you. Well, Adele, I would love for you to read a poem as well. Would you read Of Feathers of Flight from What Matters? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you. (laughs) Thank Um, you. 
A Feathers of Flight begins with an epigraph by Anne Frank. If I look up into the heavens, I think that it will all come right and that peace and tranquility will return again. That spring, a baby jay fell from its nest, and we took it to Mrs. Levine, who told us the mother would know our hands and never take it back. Spring that year was a cardboard box, cries for eyedropper food, feather stalks stretched into wings. We knew, of course, that we couldn't keep it. Later, we would mark the spot with stones and twigs, where the bird fell, where we let it go, and sometimes stopped in the middle of play, would point and say, there, right there. The day we freed it, it beat a heart clock wound and sprung in Ruth Levine's old hand that finally, finding the sky, flew higher than all the briars strung like metal barbs above the fence a speck of updraft ash and gone. Heaven, fuller then for one small bird, spread its blue wing over us and the tree and Mrs. Levine, who, breathing deeply, raised her numbered arm to the light and moved her thumb over each fingertip as if she could feel to the ends of her skin the miracle edge of freedom, of feathers, of flight. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, Mrs. Levine was a neighbor when I was a, a little girl, and, of course, she was a Holocaust survivor. And as children, we heard our parents talk about it, but we were far too young to understand. Oh, wow. And so later... I guess this is one of those poems where later it, it kind of all made sense to you. Yes, yes. And this yeah. poem like Deborah's where it has been revised any number of times. Um, it won a, an award in the Thomas Merton contest a few years ago, and that poem is quite different from the poem as it appears now. But I think that constant <laughs> process of revision is something that a lot of us do. I must know y'all's poems so well because I did notice um, when you were reading it that the the version that I read before said above the backyard fence and yeah. I think now it says <laughs> above the fence. Yeah, that, that was a rhythm little, issue. Little I, bitty I, things. I took that out for the sake of the sound. <laughs> yes, it, it does sound better. It does. I mean, it was beautiful before, but um, <laughs> well, I wanted to ask... <laughs> You know, I commented in my review uh, for Journal of New Jersey Poets that there is a sort of charged juxtapositioning of images. That's one of the te uh, unique aspects of your poetry and thinking of the arm and the bird and how each one is meaningful alone but paired together. They're like an image powerhouse and they really drive your concepts home. Is this a technique that you've intentionally developed? Well, thank you for that, that observation, and I would have to say no. I, uh, for me, a poem always starts with a single image. Something yeah. will sort of work its way around in my mind probably for several days, and uh, I might not even be fully aware of it, but uh, ultimately it comes as an image that I write down, and then the poem takes form around that image. So if if juxtapositions happen, 
um, they're kind of organic. They're not things that I plan or, or deliberately make happen. That's great. Thank you. Um, when you were talking about how the poem begins with an image, that's that's actually such a wonderful thing to think about because I know poems start differently for so many people. And I'm wondering, Deborah, how, how do poems begin for you? Um, well, I, I think on many occasions they do start with an image or um, – or, or or an emotion, something that I've been feeling and thinking about for a long time, and um, they do, and then they come out all at once. And as Adele said, um, you're quite often not aware that um, that you are um, percolating some information <laughs> in there for a poem that will come out later. Gloria, yeah, that's very you. true. Very true. Um, so, Adele, would you like to tell us more about the new poetry collection that uh, Feathers of Flight is in? Oh, what matters? Okay, well, thanks for asking that. Yes, um, What yeah. Matters is my new book, and um, I, I'm so grateful to Welcome Rain Publishers because the production on this book is absolutely gorgeous. It's a hardcover book with a dust jacket, and um, the publisher was, was so generous and kind he actually bought the rights to use um, a painting from the Tate Gallery. It's a pre-Raphaelite uh, Dante Rossetti painting for the cover. Um, what Matters is a book about survival, specifically my own experience with breast cancer. But it's not just a collection of poems about illness. I mean, really, who would want to read that? And I thought a lot about that when I was putting the book together. The main point of the book is that we're all survivors of one thing or another, grief, fear, illness, the loss of loved ones. Uh, and the poems in this collection tell us that we're not alone. They look at the human spirit and the ways in which it survives, the moments in which healing begins, and the ways in which we remember how to live. I, I hope that the collection offers a, a message of of healing and faith and hope. Great. Thank you. And I think um, I'd like to, just in the context of what you just said, I would like to revisit the issue of imagery, not just in the one poem, but in the collection as a whole. Um, do you feel that it was important with this particular subject matter to to use imagery in um, you know a more conscious way? I I don't think I did. Um, I think, as I said before, it's sort of an organic process with me. I don't really sit and deliberate about the the images or or even figures of speech when they happen. Um, I do that as I'm revising and tweaking, but when the poems come out, I just, you know, they just sort of happen for me. I don't plan them. I don't deliberate over them. The deliber deliberation process for me is is in revising and editing. Mm -hmm. But the the yeah, imagery is, is the imagery is there. It it just it comes. It's you know it's something, and I, and I can't really control it. I mean, my muse is is very fickle. She goes off on three <laughs> martini lunches, and I don't hear from her for months on end. And oh, no. you know, but when she does come around, it's sort of like, okay, now sit down and write because something's happening, and and you better catch it while you can. I'm not a very prol <laughs> prolific writer. I, I wish I were, but I'm not. 
Oh, my gosh, with your, what is it, 20 books? <laughs> well, you know what, though, a lot of those books are educational texts, and then the books about antiques and collectibles, the poetry books are, are fewer. How many poetry books do you have? Or can you remember? Um, <laughs> there are so many. Maybe seven. <laughs> maybe seven. Three three of longer poems, and the rest are, some are haiku right. and uh, sequences and things like that, but uh, I think just three of the longer poems. Well, I think a lot of us wish that we could be as non-prolific as you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And the book is so, beautiful, Adele. I, I haven't um I don't have a copy yet, but it is absolutely beautiful. I did see it. Oh, thank you, Deborah. Lots of luck with that. It, and it I love Deborah's book Vigil for a long, long time. I think this was Deborah's first collection and um it it's a marvelous collection of her earlier poems. Oh, thank you, Adele. Yeah, Deborah, would you tell us a little bit about that book? Um about Vigil? Mm-hmm. Uh, sh- sure. It's a very short collection. It's a chapbook, um, really, and um, I think it's approximately 30 pages long. Um, so there's not a whole lot of work in it, but it is my early work, and um, mainly focusing on family and um, growing up in the Ironbound section of um, Newark, where, which is where I'm from. And uh, it's a, it's a I think a very spiritual book just growing up and learning from each other and the childhood rituals that we had and um just a a, a very nice collection and and the vigil comes from my name Laveglia which um is an Italian name and means vigil so that's how I got the name mm-hmm. for it <laughs> Oh great what a, what an interesting story um, so would either of you like to share the story of how you began writing poetry? Adele, you could go, You want to go first, Adele? Uh, okay, I don't mind. Um, I started writing poetry, believe it or not, the summer that I was four. That summer, um, which was just before the Salk vaccine became available, I was diagnosed with something that the doctors called polio fever, and uh, I was bedridden. And through those long, hot days of that long-ago summer, while the other children played outdoors and my dad went to work, my mother sat at my bedside and entertained me by teaching me how to read and write. She had no training as a teacher, but somehow she managed to teach me. Uh, I don't remember much about it except uh, sounding out words in poems and in the Bible. And my mom had a, a game that we played every day in which we could only speak in rhymed couplets. (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, wow. I, credit, I credit my mother with my love of, of reading first and then, you know, my love for writing um, because it was she who who took me to it and, and guided me through, you know, that the early stages of a, a lifelong love affair with words. Wow. That's so, that's so interesting, Adele, how that it sounds like it was a lot of fun. Re- talking to each other in couplets. Well, you know, I, was <laughs> I love sick. it. I love it. I-, I was sick, and she was such an incredible mother that she, you know, she devised these things, you know, in in her own unschooled way to keep me entertained and at the same time to teach me something. She was an amazing woman. Right. That is right. amazing. Absolutely. And how about you, Deborah? Um, I, I, my mother had, now as an adult, I, I learned this, that my mother did have post, post polio syndrome and she was ill, um, all of her life, at, at least all of the life that I knew her. 
And um, so she would be in and out of the hospital, and I would often go stay long periods of time with my grandmother. And um, at that time, they didn't really go and get all of your homework, you know, so that you would keep up with the class. They kind of just let you catch up, or at least that my, was my experience. And so my, I, I would sleep in my Uncle Paulie's room, who had gone off and gotten married already, and his high school books were there. And I, I guess I was about um, maybe six or seven. And I think one of the books in his room was 101 famous american poems <laughs> and or famous po- poems not american because one of the first ones i started reading and memorizing was one from um shakespeare and uh, uh t- to be or not to be oh, and wow. so yeah that was one of the things i i i read first and then it had very many poems and it. it was a great great book and um that sparked my interest and i always um enjoyed to read poetry and to write it from then on really you know it's amazing wow, deborah so that much. amazing that there's a, a polio connection deborah and i have known each other for many years and we've been good friends we've shared a lot of things and i never knew that you know your mom had a, a polio situation as well and that you know it had a, a part in in your learning to read and write and to love poetry that that wow. is interesting. I was thinking the same thing yeah, when you were speaking gosh. of your beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of similarities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. Um, also, I'm wondering just in closing, um, if either one of you have any events or publications or anything upcoming that you would like to announce. Um. I don't know. Um, personally, there are a couple of readings coming up, but I don't have my calendar in front of me, so I couldn't tell you. But oh, I, that's I okay. Would... Do you have a website that people can check? I do. Um, it's uh, Um But I would invite anyone local to please come to the Carriage House. We're always on the third Tuesday of the month. We begin at 8 o'clock. Admission is free, and uh, there's always an open mic after the feature. And local is New Jersey, correct? Yes, yeah. I'm sorry, I should have said that. Uh, yes. Oh no, Central no Jersey. problem. And what? Okay, great. Thank you. And Deborah, I I am in the same position as Adele. I do have one or two coming up, but I I don't remember exactly. I think one is in December in Monc at the Montclair Library, but I'm not 100 percent sure. But I'd like to also just invite people to come to the Barron Arts Center. Um, for Poets Wednesday readings, we're the second Wednesday of every month, and it's in Woodbridge, New Jersey. And we have a wonderful program uh, coming in October. Um, it's um, the Edna Project, and it's the poems of Edna St. Vincent Millay um, mm. put to music. So it should be very interesting. Oh, that sounds fabulous. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your poetry and insights with us tonight. It was wonderful to have you both here. Thank you again, Melissa, for inviting us. Yes, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Oh, great. Good night. Good night. Good night. Okay, so I'd just like to thank those of you who are listening in this evening and those of you listening after the fact as well. Our next interview will be with Elizabeth Cunningham on October 17, 2011, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We also invite you to take a look at our August print issue, which has work on consciousness, creativity, and meditation by the filmmaker and writer David Lynch. 
For more information, please visit our website at www.tiferetjournal.com. That's www.tiferetjournal.com. A year subscription to Teferet is $18 and includes six issues, two print and four digital. The site is also a great place for readers and listeners to post their own poetry, since our editors feature one new poem each day from those who post. Thank you for being with us tonight. We hope you'll join us again in October.